Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Welcome back to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you loyal listeners know, I am not making that up, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk to Ann Arbor's own mayor, his honor, Christopher Taylor. Chris, good afternoon. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thank you for your time, by the way. And we'll explain to the listeners shortly uh, how little time you must have. Unexpectedly, by the way, you have no accent that I can detect, but you are from New York City, correct? That's right. I was born in New York. I lived in the area till I was nine. My parents are New Yorkers, and you would not have a similar experience talking to them. They'd let you know. <laughs> they got that New York accent? They do. Yeah, my mom's from the Bronx, my dad in Manhattan, the whole thing. Your uh, association with the state of Michigan, at least, was through Interlock and the famous Arts Academy, which has produced countless national stars, international stars, really, uh, and singing, writing, other fields as well. Uh, you are a singer by trade, which was news to me when I was going over your bio, of course. And then a pivotal day between your junior and senior year in high school pretty much changed your life, correct? It really did. I was a camper at the National Music Camp, the Interlock and Art, and also a a high school student at the Interlochen Arts Academy. And, you know, I was having my voice lesson one day and my teacher that summer told me to go audition for a scholarship at the University of Michigan, which, you know, hadn't really crossed my radar at the time. I did and it worked out and I found my way at 48104, or I suppose 48109 as the case may be. <laughs> 48109 being U of M, of course, yes. I gotta ask you, can you give us a, a sample of your singing? You really can sing. Die Gedanken sind frei, wer kann sie Awesome. There you go. Very of, of all the mayors in the state of Michigan, I think you're the best singer. There's no question. So you got, it is entirely possible. So uh, that's good news there. So had you ever seen U of M before you got the scholarship? No. Wow. That's a gutsy move right there, of course. So you moved there, of course, your freshman year. You went into the School of Music, however, not uh, LSNA, which is Literature, Science, and the Art, the larger college. You're on North Campus studying singing, correct? How did you switch to what you do now? When I was, um, uh, I was at music school and, uh, you know, enjoying that, but also I ended up deciding that I, I missed reading, right? And so in my sophomore year at the music school, I applied to LSNA also and ended up uh, working towards and, and getting an English degree at LSNA in addition to the music degree I got through the School of Music. So I found my way there. And then ultimately, after graduating both those degrees, decided that, you know, that although I loved singing, it wasn't going to be a career for me. 
and I went further into graduate school because, you know, what are you going to do if, uh, if you're not quite certain? And I went into American history graduate school. I had taken some history graduate courses, uh, one in particular with Bradford Perkins, who at the time was the graduate chair. And I didn't have any history as an undergraduate to speak of, but I did well enough in the class that he advocated for me and helped me get into the PhD program on a sort of probationary basis. Over the course of the year, it worked out, and then I got into the program uh, fully the next year and developed an interest in American legal history. Passing my prelims, I decided to go to law school so that my legal history dissertation would, would have that sort of background and, and information base. And once in law school, also here at the university, came to the conclusion that I liked law a lot better than history and was, was better at it, could find a mm. job, could decide where I wanted to live, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it ended up there. There you go. Well, I was also a history major, undergrad only, though, in my case. Uh, uh, all my the cool kids are doing it. See, there you go. I wish they still were, by the way. It's obviously shrinking, unfortunately. But the value of it to me is immense. And I hope that catches on uh, with undergrads still. Of course, my roommates were, what, engineers and business school guys and so on. So their great question was, you know, they called my major pre-unemployment. Thank you very much. And, of course, they asked, history major, what are you going to do with that? And my answer always was, I'm going to join one of those large history firms in New York which of course don't exist. I actually have a TED talk on this. If you people Google that, you'll find it out there uh, at U of M about being a history major and why it matters so much. So you're after my own heart here, Chris. Why did you prefer the law to history? You know, history stories are obviously, you know, like fascinating and really important uh, when it comes to, you know, understanding your daily life. I felt for me though, the, that in terms of what's valued in academia, I felt like I was better at the law than I was at academia. In law, you have to be creative, but your creativity is cabined by rules and precedent and the facts, the case. There's a level of sort of precision uh, that's also valued. And in history, certainly at the time, there was you know a lot more theory to it. It was more fluid, more flexible. The questions that people were asking were not questions that I felt that I could really be part of, that I felt like I was going to be able to generate and play in that game, play in that sphere. It was much better suited to my personality than at, at that point, the academic pursuit of history. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly the logic games aspect of it, which I've always enjoyed. I taught the LSAT Absolutely. for... Uh... Stanley Kaplan for years, and I really loved that aspect of it. Uh, what I prefer yeah. about practicing as a historian now versus the ivory tower, of course, being a professor, uh, is the immediacy of it. It's got to be out there. You have to make an argument. Um, you have to persuade a few thousand people or else you can't do it for a living. So <laughs> that's all part of it. But in the case of the law, of course, it's highly practical. I mean, you're putting the rubber to the road every day. You were, became the editor-in-chief of the Michigan Law Review. That is a very big deal of course, for those who are not aware of that. Tell us about why you pitched for that and what that experience was like and how that influenced what you ended up doing today. Yeah, that's an interesting time. So you know, uh, Law Review, just for, for folks in the background, it's a student journal. And oddly enough, for reasons that uh, I never really understood, it is the law reviews throughout the land of the focal point for legal academia. Professors write articles, and then the students who are on various law reviews throughout the country select and publish those articles. And that, you know, that's where law professors publish. It's a thing of prestige and, and note within law schools. My grades were decent enough, but I was never going to be particularly noteworthy with respect to my grade. And so I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to have some schmeck when I left law school, that it was going to be through law review. That's what we all want, isn't it? We want a little bit of schmeck. Give me a little schmeck, baby. The Yiddish still works around here. So exactly, I uh, got to love that, Chris. That's a, that's a New Yorker talking right there. Once I was on the law review, I kind of felt like that was going to be my angle. I was excited about the project. I enjoyed the editing and the work. You, know, you can get on by writing or by your grades, and I was able to write on, fortunately. Uh, I also you know, was pretty intentional about my project. Law students are supposed to write a note, a, a little mini article. 
and I picked an interesting topic, I thought, which was vote dilution and the census undercount. Explain that, please. Sure. So the decennial census, every 10 years, the census is run and it's an actual enumeration. People go out and they count and they send in questionnaires and they send in responses and we try to count everybody. But the process undercounts people, people who are renters, people who are minorities, people who are, you know, perhaps undocumented. These folks don't show up in the census too often, but they are people. They're they're among us and uh, they are uh, supposed to be represented in Congress and uh, in our state legislatures and our city councils and so forth. And, and, and crucially, and they, and they go to public schools, they use the roads, they use the infrastructure that we all use. So in other words, if we're going to fund these things appropriately, you need to know how many people are going to be using these things. That's the key. That's exactly right. They're valued members of the society, but they don't show up in the census. And as a consequence, they're, uh, they don't show up in election districts and how election districts are calculated or uh, allocated among the states, but even within the states, allocated and districted within the states. And so I intended to write a note about this topic. And then in October of my uh, second year in law school, the Supreme Court decided to hear a case on the topic, which gave me one of two options, drop the topic entirely, uh, which would allow the Supreme Court to sort of address the issue or bust a gut, complete the note in record time, and then have it be published in advance of the Supreme Court case. Since Law Review was where my Schmeck was going to come, you know, I decided, <laughs> I decided, well, I got to, I got to get this because I got to, uh, well, I, I need to, I need to get going. And so I, I wrote my note on vote dilution in the census undercount, and it did get published in advance of the Supreme Court case. And it worked out. The people who uh, were making this election for editor-in-chief, you know, noted my hard work, my general non-jackassery. <laughs> and, and it worked out. General non-jackassery. Kids, we're learning today. Yes, I don't think that gets you. An, I don't think that gets you an E on pod on, uh, on your podcast <laughs> ratings. I'm going to keep it that way. That's as far as I'm going to go. Well, we're okay. Don't worry about it. And plus, we've had some others who have uh, experienced the full spectrum, if you will, of the language. Yes. So there we go. I'm looking at Penn State football on that one. But anyway. Yeah. So there you are. That gave you a taste of a few things here. One, making a public impact. Two, of course, you're basically being a lawyer at that sense, even though you're a student, of course, you're making a basically an argument. Uh, three, yeah. of course, you're starting to get into civic leadership in a real sense. And then, of course, you're also president of the Intercooperative Council, a 550-member housing cooperative. That was while you were in undergrad or grad school or even law school. Did you do that? Sure. No, that's, uh, that's, that was a, an undergrad project. So people live all throughout Ann Arbor. They live in dorms and in private homes. But there's also an amazing group in Ann Arbor, the Intercooperative Council, which is student-owned, student-run housing co-op with you know, at the time, I think it was 17 houses, big and small, spread throughout the city, owned by the members, run by the students. It was my great pleasure to live at Minnie's, the Purple House on North State Street for three years and to, to serve as house president. Well, first, you know, you don't start off house president. You start off as ordering steward or bathroom steward. Uh, and then you move up to house president. And then ultimately, if, uh, if it works out, the president of the, uh, the organization as a whole. So from these things, I can see traces of what you would ultimately be doing, of course, which is legal partner as well, law partners, as well as mayor of Ann Arbor. So these impulses were in you from the early on, it seems like, early, early going. I enjoy participation. You know, I enjoy getting involved in, in organizations that, that animate me. And it's important that we do that. You know, these, these things don't, don't run themselves. They don't grow themselves. They don't, you know, move forward. They don't serve the members themselves. And it's, uh, it's important when you uh, find a place that has meaning for you that you try to support it and help make it better. Well, one thing y'all learn for me in my 20s, that a city itself, 
a community, a state, a nation, certainly, that it's not a matter of people, okay, abiding by the law, working hard, paying taxes. It has to be more than that for the whole thing to work. And Hillary Clinton was undeniably true. It takes a village to raise a kid. It takes people who do far more than are required by law for these institutions to work, for Little League Baseball to work, for the city to work, for the community to work, and so on. You had that impulse very early on in your life, it seems like. From there, you go on to your fourth degree. So you got an undergrad degree in singing, performance, of course, and English. You've got a yep. master's in history, if I have that right. Yep, that right? that's right. Uh, my music degree, my English degree, my master's in, in history along the way, and then the JD. There we go. Uh, you become ultimately a partner at Hooper Hathaway, a well-known law firm here in the state of Michigan. And I think perhaps nationally, but I'm not sure. Well, you know, uh, I'll take whatever lauds, uh, lauds you, uh, you'll, you're, you're happy to give me. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll stick with we're well-known in town. How's that? There we go. Well-known in town. And right downtown, of course, is how we met uh, years ago, of course. So interesting work. What is your specialty at Hooper Hathaway? Well, I do mostly small business work and estate planning. Along the way, I, you know, you have to come to some decision about whether you're going to be, you know, what sort of law you're going to practice and you know, what, uh, what type of law is suited for you. You know, I decided, uh, although I did enjoy the, um, the argument, the legal thinking and the creativity behind litigation, that the, uh, the fight of it all was not something that I'm really interested in. And so I ended up shifting you know, now at Cooper Hathaway. I do mostly small business representation, you know, local companies here and there, and then estate planning, which is a, a facet that I never envisioned myself working on, but I, I've really just come to value. It's intimate. You talk with folks about their families, you know, their personalities, their relationships, Parents are trying to, you know, make it better for their kids. How kids need to think about how they can help their parents as they age. It's a practice that involves getting to know people and doing what you can to help them and help them think through the issues that confront them. And with that, naturally, you have some uncomfortable conversations here and there. And I know this because my parents are 90 and 87. They just moved into mm -hmm. Balfour Senior Living voluntarily quite, and they're very happy there. They retained, obviously, an estate lawyer. We've gone through this whole process, and it all worked out very, you know, ultimately very well. You have to talk about things that people don't like talking about very much, including death itself. And, uh, and as you might be aware, death is, in fact, undefeated. So it's uh, it, it is, you know, none of us are going to get out of this alive. That's the sad fact. So that's yeah. the list as well. Somewhere along the line, it occurs to you to run for city council of Ann Arbor and then, of mm -hmm. course, run for mayor. Where did that yeah. impulse come from and where did that time come from? You and Ava have got two kids. And of course, they were in grade school when you started this path. I believe. Um, and, you know, that's, these are all consuming things. And being a partner at a law firm is a consuming thing. So where'd you find the impulse and where'd you find the time to make public life possible? I've always liked government. It's always fascinated me. You know, back in history, uh, when I was, you know, reading uh, and studying American history, I know, understand, and fully with my heart acknowledge that social history and intellectual history and all manner of cultural histories and studies are important and crucial for us to understand. I had a little bit of political history vibe to me. It's where I was drawn. And so that kind of got me to legal history. So I've always liked government, even though I had some leadership positions, as you've identified, never really pictured myself participating in it. And I don't quite know why. I sort of had this notion how the world worked. You know, it was much more of a caucus party system where you get tapped by this sort of unknown group <laughs> of people. And I just didn't imagine myself doing it. You know, speaking of, you know, those sort of serendipitous, timely events, like my voice lesson back in my junior year, I was having brunch at a friend's house in March of 2008. And we got to talking about state politics and national politics. And he said, you know, well, why don't you run for city council? You should do that. I told him for, you know, all the reasons why I couldn't do that. And he said, you know, all those reasons are stupid. 
<laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. So you mentioned Burns Park players and he said, so Christopher, let me, let me, let me, get, let me ask you a question. Does anybody know you in the neighborhood? And I say, well, well, yeah, I've been leading the Burns Park musical for the past couple of years. And he's like, okay, so people know you. Have you been a jerk during that time? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not really a jerk. People, you know, people seem to like me for the most part. Do you know that the area where Burns Park, generally speaking, you know, it comprises like 40% of the Democratic primary vote in the election? It's like, oh, no, I had no idea. It's like, yeah, you didn't, did you? Well, you know. <laughs> So then he talked a little bit also about why, you know, it might be good for me to do it, why I might like it and said, you know, and if you can, if you want to, you'll be able to, because, you know, you have a network that you never knew you had in the musical, like you have you lucked into a physical space where, you know, people happen to vote in great numbers. And when you go knock on doors, people will like to talk to you. So if this is a thing that you'd like to do, you can do it. And, you know, I know, and a couple of pals I know will help, but you got to act soon because the petition signatures are due in four weeks. Wow. So we're back to the law review. Either you're going to bust a gut and get this thing done, yeah. or you can watch the train go by. That's right. And so, you know, I put down the voices in your head that tell you that this is never going to work and <laughs> you know, decided, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. And so I went out and got my signatures and was on the ballot and then learned how to run a local campaign with the help of pals over the next couple of months and not however many doors I knocked over the next four months and won the primary. And there it was. So you're on city council. So on city council, yes, 2008. And so, you know, was on city council then for six years. I enjoyed those immensely. City council is, and local government generally is fascinating work. In Ann Arbor, we, uh, you know, we're not professionals, right? We're just people that knocked enough doors to get elected. And running a city is intricate and complicated. And uh, it's just fascinating. I just love the learning. What'd you learn as a city council member about your city that you've lived in at that point for a couple of decades? What'd you learn about it that you didn't know before? Two things. The one sort of broad structural thing is it's all about water. Wow, really? Water coming in, water coming out, water falling down. Everything's about water. It's just so many systems related to water. But the one thing that I did learn, when you come on city council, you land on various boards and commissions as part of your duties. Right. It's not just the two meetings a month. You've got some subcommittees. You've got boards and commissions. And I was fortunate enough to be slated for the Parks Advisory Commission. So I'm on the Parks Advisory Commission. My first meeting, they get to talking about spending, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but you know, so we're going to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on a disc golf course. And I think this was in Bandemir. And by the way, for you non Ann Arborites, this thing goes internationally. Burns Park is probably the most famous neighborhood of Ann Arbor's 54 or so. It's where the professors often live. Bandemir Park is not too far from downtown. It's on the river. It's very close to my home, actually. So continue on the disc golf. All right. Yeah. So a couple hundred thousand dollars we're going to put in a disc golf course here. And, you know, I would never have done this now, but I had something to say about it. And like I said, I'm, I'm not a jerk, but I wasn't a jerk about it. But I expressed a measure of skepticism about the, the value. And then, like, basically, you can picture a scene when, like, you're talking around a table and somebody says something that's like record scratch and everybody ducks. <laughs> and so that's what happened. That's, that's kind of what happened here. They're like, oh, da -da -ba -da -ba -da -da. don't say that. The disc golf people will come. You don't know how many people love disc golf. It's like everybody plays. They love it. And then it's like, oh, I've got a lot to learn. There are worlds that you can't imagine. There you go. I now love playing disc golf. Disc golf is great, but it's not something that had ever crossed my mind or path before. And so I learned about disc golf, my first meeting out. Uh, I recall as a ninth grader in Ann Arbor, we took civics and we had a great program with Ms. Davis, who's still around, about the city budget. We spent about two or three weeks and we explored it individually. And of course, I was already playing a little bit of golf at Leslie Park and here on Hills and so on. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, 
it never occurred to me, this stuff all costs money. These are decisions made by people who run this city, and they've chosen to spend, you know, half a million dollars or much more probably even then uh, on these golf courses. And that's why I get to play golf on Saturday at these two places. And all these things kind of break down from there in Vets Park where I play hockey. That's now enclosed, and that costs money too. And that's what it all looks like. So I discovered at age 14, this stuff costs money. People make decisions. And, and of course, even for disc golf, 200000 sounds like a whole hell of a lot uh, when you first look at it. And then, of course, you open your mouth and discover that you're about to get run over by the uh, disc golf mafia, apparently. <laughs> the disc golf lobby. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 don't, you don't want to fight big disc golf. That's, don't, don't do that. Big pharma, <laughs> big disc exactly, golf. I, that's but, what I learned. One thing you learned is all the stuff in the city is attached to a constituency that cares about it a great deal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there are, there, there's, there's even, you know, Ann Arbor, it's a you know, small town as far as it goes, but it's uh, constantly surprising. There you go. On this front, both from the legal career, history of uh, three careers, history career, legal career, and of course, the uh, city government career. Uh, who were your mentors along the way and what did they teach you? Well, you know, uh, on the city side, you learn from watching in many respects, right? And I guess on the city side, you know, primarily, you know, I learned from the, the mayor before me. You know, Mayor Heefja. Right. John Heefja. Yeah, John Heefja was mayor when I came onto city council in 2008. After 14 years, decided that that was just about enough in 2014. And then after he decided to step down, that's when I ran for mayor and was, was fortunate enough to be elected. From him, you learn a couple of different things from watching him. He valued environmentalism, and that was in line with my thinking and posture. He valued a city and recognizing the, the need for growth. And so I also you know, understood and recognized and learned that. But he had a sort of a positive, critical distance from the project. You have to, you know, I don't know if you know this, uh, John, but not everybody's going to agree with you uh, when, you're, <laughs> when you're working in local government. I, I've never it, encountered that myself, obviously, in writing. But uh, I'm curious about your experience. <laughs> And not everything that you think is a good idea, well, first off, is a good idea, but that's a whole separate question. Not everything that you think is a good idea is going to actually happen. And there are going to be people who want to do something different. You just have to kind of accept that and not let it bother you. Getting to that place, you know, incorporating the serenity prayer into your, uh, you know, your, your governance theory, well, that's an important part of uh, you know, living, I think, generally, but certainly working in City Hall. That is fascinating. To do this job and do it well, and you've won re-election more than once, of course, so since 2014, again, recently this summer, I believe, of course, that you have to distance yourself from some of the responses. If you take this stuff too personally, you simply can't do this kind of work. And one thing I say when I give speeches on this, I was in Green Bay in Florida the last week, two different places, of course, about leadership. I once talked to a beekeeper and I said, do you ever get stung? And he said, plumbers get wet, beekeepers get stung. If you don't like water, don't be a plumber. If you don't like bees and you're afraid to get stung, don't be a beekeeper. If you cannot stand criticism, do not get into leadership in your company, in your organization, uh, Little League Baseball or the city of Ann Arbor, because you're going to get criticized by people you don't know. And one of the great lines I heard from a friend of mine who ran for regent and got it at the University of Michigan is, let me get this straight. I'm going to spend my own money so people I don't know can criticize me in public. Do I have that right? And <laughs> that's... That is now part of the equation. And how much has social media impacted the quality of life for city leaders, as well as how you get your work done? You know, I tend to, well, quality of life. Social media, you know, it, it all depends on what you bring to it. I mean, to some degree, it only exists if it exists in your, in your life. Instagram exists. I'm not on Instagram. And so all the hoo-ha <laughs> on Instagram, not part of my life. I lurk on Twitter now and again. I don't really post. And so all the hoo-ha on Twitter, not really part of my life. You know, Facebook, 
I'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of the work we're doing, but I'm just not going to get involved in criticizing people on it and talking about other folks. And so that's sort of the turmoil of it, the snarkiness. That's just not part of my vibe and it's just not part of my governing experience because I try to stay out of it. By the way, it's simple and difficult and genius. Ignore it. And don't participate. Once you're once you have to dive in, then you're part of the discussions. Yeah, the the old cartoon. You know, I can't come to bed right now. Somebody's wrong on the internet. You know, <laughs> you, you, you just can't fix everything. Right. And sometimes when talking with folks about it, it's both highly adaptive, but it's also debilitating because it reduces my communication with people. And there are some instances with, through social media and elsewhere where there is an opportunity for real discussion about something. And it is important as mayor, I have a perspective that is useful and typically- Knowledgeable, certainly. You know, well-informed. Well right. It's good for the mayor to communicate. And I do work to communicate and it's good to meet people where they are. And I try to find that balance. Uh, you know, I tend to err on the side of non-engagement with arguments and contests online. But, you know, <laughs> I, I recognize that there is a place for that kind of communication. I'm just not temperamentally up for it sometimes. There we go. In your career now, eight years, nine years running as mayor of Ann Arbor, of course, it's the water you already mentioned. And by the way, that's fascinating that it's all about the water. I would never have guessed that. Uh, you're, of course, involved in the parks, the roads. Naturally, uh, it's the Midwest. So we have cold winters, hot summers, and roads break down. So I see construction everywhere these days, which is a good sign. Yep. Um, and of course, affordable housing. The list goes on and on. What do you think the average voter, the average citizen in any town in America uh, would not guess about municipal government that, as you've seen it? What is the surprise to you? You know, I guess without particularity, if I could change like sort of one thing about people's perception and thoughts and thinking about local government, it will often be the case where you'll see something. There'll be some, some road will be fixed this way or there'll be some plan or policy that way. And be like, oh, what are they doing that for? Why are they doing that? And the real question is, why are they doing that? So often, and this is, you know, because, you know, I, I, you show up as an elected official, you know, in 2000 eight, nine, 10, and so forth, all the way up through 22. And like, you know, I listen to folks and people have ideas that they bring to me. And I have ideas that I bring to staff about some, some issue or some policy or some practice that, that warrants changing or could warrant changing. And so I ask about it and there is so much thought and expertise that goes into almost everything. And the way things are subject, of course, to all the human foibles and failures, sure. but places that are well-run really try to think through their local issues carefully. They think through why we are doing these things. We are ordering these things in this way for a real reason. And it may be, well, maybe a good reason. Uh, it may be, you know, very state, for example, safety specific, you know, be the result of engineering expertise. It may be vestigial because, you know, some council in, in you know, 2004 passed some policy that has, you know, an unexpected consequence now that just hasn't been fixed, but, uh, you know, order of operations requires that the policy be followed. Bottom line is that I would encourage people to approach local government with, with sort of expecting that there's some thought, the present condition. That we got here for a reason. The reason might not be awesome and it might not hold true in the future, but that we're here because of some thought process. And let's try to figure that out and utilize that current condition, that thought process to see if we can improve. That's very well said, of course, that these decisions are not willy nilly. 
a lot of thought goes into them. And of course, not that many people necessarily go to a city council meeting. Obviously, people do, but not the, the whole city doesn't. And they don't all tune in. So they don't always know what the process was, which is usually pretty transparent. Certainly in Ann Arbor, it is. So those are all good factors. What I find in my line of work, of course, which is you know public speaking, radio, TV, and books and whatnot, is a high level of cynicism. Now, the vast majority of what I get on Twitter and Facebook is 97, 98% positive, which is makes me a very lucky writer, to say the least. Uh, so I'm yeah. grateful for that. But you still, I, I'm amazed at the level of cynicism. This is all for clicks. I don't get paid for clicks. What do I care? It's amazing. Yeah. And you hear about, you know, corrupt journalism. I, I see lazy journalism, frankly, too often, but I almost never see corrupt journalism. It's the corruption is quite rare, to say the least. So I think the same thing is true in city government. There's not some backroom deal. You don't like the decision, and I get that. That's not how it came about. So what is the best day as the mayor and what is your worst day as a mayor? Well, my worst day is easy. My worst day was, was my first day. I was sworn in November 2014 and, you know, walked up, you know, my family was there. I got sworn in at the clerk's office, walked up to show him the office. And the city administrator was sitting with the chief of police in the city administrator's office. The group of us walked by and they kind of motioned me in, told me to close the door. You know, we learned about the, the killing of Aura Rosser, you know, the death of Aura Rosser in our community. And so that was that was the hardest day that wow. I've had as mayor. Incredibly difficult for, for so many and ongoing. That, that was a difficult day. That would do it. Yeah, it was. And also, you know, my first day and I was unequipped. Who, who can be equipped for that, obviously? It's anyway. my job, but nevertheless, right. I, the best day, well, that's easy. Whenever, whenever I go into an elementary school. Oh, really? I mean, elementary students, you can be a senator. You can outrank me from here to, here to forever, but they know their mayor. You know, the mayor is part of their town and they, they dig the mayor. I love that. Anytime I get to work with people, like one of the things that keeps me coming back is, you know, working with residents, working with council members and colleagues and working with staff on projects of common purpose. There are so many people who know so much from whom I can learn, who are excited about the things that we can do, like I am at the city, whether it's with, our, with A20 or improving, you know, affordable housing or, you know, making sure our, you know, Parks are beautiful, all these things. And there are people devoted to these issues. And, you know, it's just exciting to come to Zoom or come to City Hall or wherever and to be able to work with them on this. Their enthusiasm is infectious. Their expertise is illuminating. The results show. This conversation makes me much more optimistic about city government in general, which I am very happy with here in Ann Arbor. I must say that before all this. But just all the things that goes into it and the surprisingly positive spirit, I would guess I would say, because, again, we get cynical too often. So... This is illuminating for me as well. So I'm going to close with two things. I always do this. The, the three main points I'm pulling out of this. One, be willing to take a chance. That's your scholarship singing opportunity on a random Tuesday at Interlochen as a probably a 16 or 17 year old kid. Well, that results in you being the mayor for nine, 10 plus years. So uh, as well as a, uh, of course, law firm partner. So be willing to take a chance. When someone opens the door for you, walk through it and see what happens. I like that. Two, related to that, I would say, is seize the opportunity. Your article, of course, on, uh, on the census uh, resulted in all kinds of things that happened afterwards, including editor-in-chief of the Law Review. But that's because you had a chance. You realize, okay, I got a few weeks here to, to really swallow this one or walk away. And you swallowed it. And how long did it take you? Two or three weeks, it probably changed your life. So that's pretty cool, too. The last thing about trying out for city council is put down the voices in your head that say you can't do this and it's not going to work. We all have those doubts. They're bound to crop up and you just got to push them aside. So I love that as well. Last question is, who was your favorite teacher and why? Oh, well, my favorite teacher is Mr. Hintz. 
so, you know, this is at the, uh, at the Interlock and Arts Academy. Yes, so I went to the Interlochen Arts Academy for my my last two years of high school, junior senior year. Uh, and Mr. Hints, who you know, Hawkeye fan, so you know, mostly a good guy. Uh, Iowa, that is correct. Yes, that's correct. An English teacher of long standing. I think you know, at that point, he was you know twenty, thirty, thirty years. He came at the second year of, of the academy and had been there ever wow. since. And was a kind and thoughtful man, encouraging, who took just great delight in his students. You know, mm. he just, he, he knew how to bring out the best in you. He knew how to, and it's a boarding school. And so, you know, it, it's its own unique thing. Uh, you get to know your teachers, you know, even more so. The teacher has to, you know, keep an eye out for kids who are going through hard times. Like I said, just be, be encouraging and challenging. And he was all those things and more. He was just tremendous. Mr. Hintz, Howard Hintz. How your uh, music degree, of course, becomes also an English degree, which leads to law school and all the rest. So Mr. Hintz's fingerprints are all over your career, naturally. So it's very true. Quick question, was Mr. was Mr. Hintz easy? No, he was not. He was challenging in all the right ways. Well, not only that, but you know, you worked hardest for him because you were excited to make him pleased. I love that. You wanted to be your best in his class. That's when leadership works best. It's not yelling and screaming. It's oh, students yeah. who respect you so much that you refuse to let them down. And yep, that's that right. was, that was yep. your dynamic there, obviously. So, Chris, mm -hmm. this has been a wonderful conversation. I have learned a ton. I've learned a bit about law school. I went to law school for 24 hours. That's my record. But I learned a whole lot about city government, how it actually works. And I come away much more reassured than I would have been otherwise. Not that I was fearful of Ann city government, but it really is reassuring to see how it actually works. And of course, transparency is all part of that. So I appreciate greatly. Uh, your contributions here today and your uh, honest and uh, clear voice. And also, by the way, since I voted for you repeatedly, I appreciate you being the mayor of my town. So thank you for that also. You're a gentleman of discernment. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Yes, that's right. Well, I've been delighted by the conversation too. And, you know, I'm uh, you know, local government is just, it's all run by people, right? So it's going to be imperfect. But Ann Arbor staff, they are just there to do the right thing. They're there to work hard. They understand their mission and their goal. And they understand they're here for the, the community members. City council, you know, is, uh, you know, for, for all our foibles, I think, too, are, are looking at the same direction. Yeah, there's a lot that we can do here, and I'm just, uh, I'm just excited to work with them. I'm excited to work with residents, too, who love their town. You know, one thing we noticed, when we, we lived out east for a little while, and you know, people would, uh, you know, on the weekends, go out to the Cape. And it's sort of, you know, if you feel like, oh, like this place is emptied out, this, this doesn't have anything here, here. But in Ann Arbor, you know, people are focused on Ann Arbor. They want to make it better. They want to work together. And uh, it's just really exciting and, and gratifying to be a part of it. And so, you know, for that project, I'm, I'm grateful. I love that aspect of it. And, and, and for this conversation, too, I'm grateful. You know, it's always, it's, always, it's always nice to talk to you. Well, you're very kind. And by the way, you've done such a good, good job in this city. Well, we like going up north, like a lot of Ann Arborites do in the summertime. But there's so much going on in Ann Arbor, including Top of the Park, the Summer Festival, you name it, Art Fair, and so on, that you can't be gone for too long without missing out. I love this town for that reason. So uh, for a lot of reasons, of course, but that's among them. So Christopher, thank you so much for all your time. My guest has been Christopher Taylor, his honor himself, the mayor of Ann Arbor since 2008. I appreciate your time. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. And please subscribe, please tell your friends, and spread the word. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes 
And by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.